Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Bill Bider. Uh, some of you may have seen me up in the front once or a few times, but uh, first time in this building, and I'm pinch hitting today for um, our A team and B team, which I'd, I guess, label as uh, Mike and Kent. When we get down to the C team, you got either me or Larry, I think. <laughs> and Larry, I hope you're okay wherever you are. I hope you're okay with me uh, identifying you along with myself as C team. I don't even know where you are, but, uh, but I hope that's okay. Uh, I, I really enter into this kind of thing with great trepidation, um, just knowing the responsibility of of trying to take God's word and present it to you. So uh, I hope it comes across the way God wants it to come across today. I picked a topic that is a difficult one, but it ends pretty encouraging. There uh, was a man, and I think this is on your handout. I'm going to do a lot of verses today, but not focus on all of them. We may hit them all, we may not hit every verse that's on your study sheet, but um, there was a man named Robert Ingersoll uh, that he lived in the 1800s. He was a veteran of the Civil War, a lawyer, a great orator. He was somebody who really advocated the idea of free thinking, which really puts science and reasoning and naturalistic type ideas above faith and tradition. He grew up in a devout Christian home, but he was thoroughly ad agnostic, at least according to his own definition of himself. And why would I be quoting a person that's an agnostic who really promoted this concept of free thinking? It's because he really had one wise observation that I thought hit the nail right on the head regarding temptation. He said, temptations are as thick as the leaves of the forest, and no one can be out of reach of temptation unless he is dead. Well, because temptation is so unavoidable and so potentially harmful, I chose to teach about that today, and not just about the kind of temptations we face, but how God gave us guidance and advice on how to deal with it. And that's what we're going to hit on today. So let's, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We, uh, we know that you have told us in your word how serious temptation is and how we should avoid it whenever possible. But we know we can't totally avoid it. So we depend on you, Lord, to show us how to deal with it. And today we, we just ask you, Lord, to speak to us to our hearts, show us in our own lives whether we're dealing with temptation as we should or if we need to change. So I pray, Lord, that we would all come away today with a better understanding of your plan and how we need to just implement it more thoroughly in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, definition of temptation. This is pretty much just out of a Webster's type dictionary. It's actually a combination of a couple definitions that I put together. And it says, a temptation is a situation that entices us to do something or think something that is almost always wrong or potentially harmful to ourselves or others. Temptations lure us, entice us, urge us, call out to us, and often draw us into behaviors that God would call sin. 
That's a pretty good definition, and I believe that most of you can probably say that you've been tempted in one or more ways already today. Maybe you haven't thought about it, but if you do think back, I bet you can think of a few things that were temptations that you've already faced. And maybe, I would say, maybe the majority of us may have let our guard down somewhat. Maybe not so in an act, outward act, but maybe in a thought. We were tempted to think something, and a sin could be a sinful response to that temptation, could be a thought as well as an action. Hardly anyone would ever have a full day without succumbing to at least one or more of the temptations that entered their life in that day. On our best days, we might be able to control outward behavior, but I doubt anyone can really totally control every aspect of their thought life in response to those temptations. Now, you may be saying, uh, hold on a minute here. What are you saying? Didn't God promise that he would protect those who trust in him, believe in him, who are Christian from temptation? You'll see this verse, the first uh, one other than the key verse that we will come back to at the top of the page, where 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, you meaning believers, except that what is common to mankind and God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out or many translations say a way of escape so that you can endure it so does this verse this passage actually say that God has promised that he will enable you to recognize each and every temptation that you face in a day you know you're facing it, you see it, you see it for what it is. And is he saying that he will make absolutely sure that you choose to take the path of escape that he has provided? I don't think that's what this promises. I think he is promising that escape is possible. And he's also implying here that we have been empowered to endure, resist, stand firm, in light of those temptations that we're going to face. But it's up to us to choose whether or not we're going to take that way of escape. God gave us free will. He gave us the power to do so. But will we always say yes, and will we take the way of escape that he, he has provided? Well, I think you will see here that that is not a guarantee that we will always be forced to take that way of escape. If you look in James' letter uh, to the 12 tribes, and that's what his letter is, James' letter was a very practical letter written to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered through the nations. Right in his first chapter, he explained uh, some of the relationship between temptation, our own evil desires, and then the sin that could follow. He distinguishes those. In James 1, 14 and 15, it says, When tempted... I'll stop there. When? It means you will be tempted. Expect it. No surprise that you will be tempted. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God allows temptation in our life, but he certainly is not causing it, according to this verse. Just continuing there with verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. 
Then after God has conceived, I'm sorry, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James is saying to us that temptations will come, and we have something in us that he is referring to as evil desires. Those evil desires, you may also be saying, I don't have evil desires. But I think if you have that thought about yourself, you may be deceiving yourself. Those evil desires, they are in us all as long as we live in these fleshly bodies because we inherited them from Adam, our first father. We inherited them, they're still with us. Those evil desires are things like the lusts of the flesh and the eyes, the pride of life. Those things that remain in us are what takes a temptation that comes to us and allows us to act on it in some way that is detrimental to us. And when we do, it gives birth to sin. So James is clearly saying that temptation plus something that is internal to us that inherited sinful nature that resides in us still combine and we end up with sin. All too often we end up in sin and we don't choose to take that way of escape. We'll keep coming back to that concept of choosing to take the way of escape. Now, if all of those evil desires, these lusts, the sensual lusts, disappeared when we became Christian, then temptation would really have no significance to us because it wouldn't be a risk, it wouldn't be a danger. We would be able to always choose the right response. Paul gave us, uh, um, we're going to see a little bit from Paul, we're going to see a little bit from Jesus here as to uh, how true this concept is and the way that this is working in even believers, because that's what we're talking about here today, how do believers respond to these things. In Romans chapter 7, probably one of the best passages of all scripture that describes this battle, really, that rages within a believer, where we've got this inner being that wants to delight or takes delight in doing the things that God would have us do with the flesh that is in conflict with that. But Romans chapter 7, just picking a couple verses out of a much longer passage, says, for I have the desire to do what is good. And there he's referring to that inner being, that new spiritually born creation that came at the time of salvation. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, that I is a different I. That I is that sinful nature that still resides. That's that battle that's raging. There's two I's here. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the good I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. He recognized this conflict. He explained it very clearly in this chapter uh, that we have an inner being that delights in God and we have a flesh that wants to be gratified. Now, I want to stop for a second here and say temptation is not sin. I want to emphasize that. James clearly made the distinction, distinction in the passage we just looked at. And this is confirmed most clearly, really, in the person of Jesus. That Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the desert, and yet for 33 years 
his time walking the earth, Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. It's our response to the temptation that determines whether we sin, not that we have been tempted. But Jesus really knows how dangerous temptation was, and much of what he taught and encouraged his disciples to do related to the fact that he knew we had this sinful nature still at work, potentially combining with the temptation that comes our way. And, and let's look at a few of the things that Jesus taught here. Um, really, let's first look at the Garden of Gethsemane. When um, Jesus went with the disciples just days before he was crucified into the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted to go off alone to pray. And he did. And he told him to keep watch, though, when he went out to pray. And he returned, and as you know, we found him asleep. And uh, what did he say when he found him asleep? He said in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is describing that same conflict that is going on in a person who is a believer. They have the spirit at work, that inner being that Paul referred to, but they still got the flesh that wants to be gratified, and the flesh is weak. And he warned them that that was part of what they were facing. Jesus also encouraged his disciples uh, to pray that they would not be uh, encountering a lot of temptation. The, pray, the Lord's Prayer, best example from the Sermon on the Mount, that model that Jesus gave us. What did he say? We've said it hundreds of times probably, each one of us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus recognized this weakness, and he knew that if we encountered temptations, we were likely to fail often. Maybe not every time, but often. So he thought it would be best to minimize temptation and to pray for God to help minimize the temptations that enter into our lives. And when we do pray in this way, what are we admitting? We're admitting our weakness to sin when we're tempted and that tendency to respond in a sinful way to a temptation. And we're admitting that we need God's help to overcome temptation. Just by praying that simple thing, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one, depending on the translation. Another example from Jesus in John 17 this is the longest prayer of Jesus that's recorded anywhere in the Bible. And he prays for himself, his disciples, and all believers in this John 17. And one thing that he said in verse 15 there was, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So again, he is asking for that protection from the evil one. So who's the evil one? Our adversary, Satan, but that includes all of his demonic army. What, are, what is another name that has been given to Satan? There's a lot of names in Scripture, but a couple that are very relevant to this concept here of, of what we're trying to be protected from, and it's, he's referred to as the tempter, the deceiver, the father of lies, and it all began in the Garden of Eden with Eve, so he's asking that we be protected from the temptations and deception of Satan. 
Now again, we're back to us as believers. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us and gives us wisdom, gives us self-control. But that doesn't mean that we're strong enough to always overcome. Minimizing temptation in our lives is a good idea, and we're going to come to to that here in, in a bit, or whether we are minimizing temptation or not. So Jesus made it clear as could be. We're going to fail, at least to some degree, with all the temptations that come into our lives. So now let's just talk about, uh, I think we all would admit, temptation is very common every day. If you can go through a whole day without temptation, that I, I just don't think that is realistic to think that's possible. Especially even if you just stay home all day, stay in the house all that day long, you've still got your thought life to deal with, or whatever you're going to uh, expose yourself to in your own home. But uh, this world that we live in is uh, largely under the influence of that evil one, who the Bible refers to as the God of this world. Now, everybody can come up with a list of where you think most of your temptations originate in a given day. Advertising and entertainment just promote and encourage self-indulgence and sensual pleasures, don't you think? TV, the internet, movies, everything else that we look at is just appealing to our lusts over and over and over. Shopping, can't go through a checkout line without a bunch of temptations hitting you. Signs, billboards, computer pop-ups. They are about the worst thing that I have seen in my life when it comes to temptation. That's what they are. They are tempting you, even if they're just tempting you to click on something, how do they attract your attention? What is it that's shown in that little flashing pop-up thing on your computer? It's awful, really. What would this Robert Engersoll man say today? Would he think that the temptations that he saw in the late 1800s uh, were mild compared to what we're encountering today? My guess is he would. Now, the temptations that I face as a man are probably very similar to a lot of you men out there. And I'm going to just mention a few that I think are a big deal to us guys, okay? And then I'll maybe expand that a little bit to cover other, others who are here today. Us guys are pretty easily tempted to have lustful thoughts when we see a really attractive woman, whether it's picture, live, movie. You know, just face it, guys. <laughs> I think doesn't mean we're acting on it. But what are we thinking? It doesn't mean we want to do something immoral with that person. But remember what Jesus said, that you just look lustfully at a woman and you've committed adultery. Us guys are tempted to watch too much TV or the wrong things on TV or to surf the channels if we're not seeing what we want. Surfing anything is not a good idea whether you're surfing the TV channels or whether you're surfing the Internet. Now, surfing waves is okay. <laughs> um, 
wasting time on the internet. It's not just what you're seeing, but it's the time waster. Is it keeping you away from your family? But it's a temptation. They're getting, you're getting some feedback out of that that somehow is tempting you to just go there again. But men are also tempted in ways that appeal to our pride, our manliness. We're tempted to do something that maybe we shouldn't do because of our pride. I'm going to have a story at the end of this message today that relates to that very idea. My list could go on and on, but some of the rest of you, some other things that may be big temptations in your life may be your devices, your electronic devices, your iPhones or whatever else you may have. Um, Social media, a temptation to just get on there and gossip online or whatever it is you do. I'm... I mean, I'm not big at social media, but I may be a little too big on some of that internet type stuff. Or really using those devices at the wrong time. That's a temptation too. You've got that in your hand. I saw something coming home from work Friday that I could not believe. You know, you see people using their phones in the car, which is illegal, but you drive on Wanamaker and you watch every car you go by, and if you don't see at least somebody doing something with their phone... It would be a shocking day to me because I'm very observant of that. But there was somebody Friday afternoon coming home. It was a young woman in her car. She had her head bent over, kind of like this. And I was wondering, just looking over there, what's going on? And I pull up alongside of her, and I see she's got a phone stuck in between her shoulder and her head, and she's got another one in her hand texting (laughs) at the same time. That, that took the cake. <laughs> well, all tempt... I guess some other ones for some people may be gambling, the buffet lines in all the all-you-can-eat restaurants, a gossipy group in work or your neighborhood, whatever your temptation is. We all have vulnerabilities and we ought to know what they are. We ought to try to examine ourselves to see where we are most vulnerable. But all temptations are not related to sensual pleasure. Some of them urge us to do things that, like say harmful things. You're tempted to say something that's harmful and it really accomplishes nothing. It just brings harm to you as well as the person that you have hurt. We're tempted to get revenge or take risks. We might be an adventurous person and that's going to relate to the story that I tell at the end thinking God will protect us. I knew a guy that I worked with that had an old van, and he was a Christian guy, very sincere in his faith. He had a van that had 600,000 miles on it, and he drove it all over North America. And I challenged him several times as to whether that was wise to be taking this up into the Canadian Rockies knowing something was going to break. And he said, I trust God to take care of me. And he had multiple problems. And I, I, whether that changed his faith in God, I don't know. But, uh, but he tested God. And Jesus told us when he was tempted by the devil to throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple, what did he say? He said, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So sometimes we think we're being a really good, strong Christian and we are testing God in a way that we really shouldn't. 
Okay, Jesus didn't want us to play with fire. He wanted us to avoid temptation to the extent possible because he knew we would fail at times and we would sin as a result of those temptations. Now, this is not a message on sin, but I'm not going to totally ignore it because that's why Jesus thought temptation was so serious. It was so serious because it was to make us sin less. If we are exposed to less temptation, if we know how to deal with it, we're not going to sin as much. So real quick, I'm going to go through just a couple verses that point out some of the problems associated with sin that we're trying to truly avoid. That's the ultimate that we're trying to avoid. In Isaiah 59.2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear your prayers. Now, if we sin, we're not losing our salvation. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. But what impact does it have? That impacts our service to God other and others, our witness, our relationships with God and others. All those things are affected by the sin that would come. Now, Jesus also, his work on the cross, did bring reconciliation with God despite our sin. But unrepentant and ongoing sin, even in the lives of believers, will affect our communion with God. We shouldn't expect to hear his voice clearly. We shouldn't uh, expect him to hear our prayers and answer them the way we would like if we're living rebelliously. So... Is your prayer life suffering? Are you not really getting out of God's word what you would like when you're reading it? Maybe a little self-evaluation or examination might show that, that there's some sin in your life that may be getting in the way of that. Uh, another verse that I'm going to look at just real quick is Galatians 6, 7, and 8. And... Uh, You've heard this many times. In fact, last week this was read from the front of the church where Paul told us, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A mad man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. In other words, there are going to be consequences that are harmful of sin. We will reap what we sow in the way of some kind of harm to ourselves or others it could be physical, emotional, spiritual, but there will be some reaping from that. So I don't want to dwell anymore on sin. We all know we want to minimize sin, and there are a lot of serious consequences associated with it. So try as we may to avoid temptation. We can't fully avoid them. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with temptation that comes into our lives? This is where we come to the key verse, which is really at the top of your study sheet. And we're going to spend some time just kind of evaluating this verse in a variety of ways, but it's Proverbs 22.3, and it says, A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. There is a lot here on this one verse. We don't use the word prudent that much today. Anybody use the word prudent this week? Probably not. Do you like being called a prude? You probably have a very negative idea. If somebody calls you a prude, you probably don't take it as a compliment, do you? But a prudent person is a prude. 
They go together, right? I have an old dictionary, the Noah Webster Dictionary, 1828. Anybody ever look at that old dictionary? It's pretty neat to look at it because it tells you a lot of the definitions relate to the way the words are used in Scripture. And that's what's so neat about it. Well, if you look in that dictionary and look up either prude or prudent, they're going to be positive traits. Okay, they're not going to be negative, as it would be perceived mostly today. That um, a prude in that dictionary is a person who has wisdom, is sober-minded, one who stands firm and uncompromising on matters of morality. That sounds like a good thing, to be a prude. Today, though, look it up and see what prude says in a new modern dictionary. Here's what it, some of the things it says. And I don't think, this, in today's world especially, this would not be real positive. A prude is considered one who is excessively proper, extremely modest, easily shocked by matters related to sex, and overly shy. It's just going too far, isn't it, in your implementing your beliefs on morality. It's not a positive thing today, but actually, you can look the word prudent up, and today's dictionaries are not so negative on prudent as they are on prude. They've separated them to some degree in a modern dictionary. And it says, really, this is out of a current modern dictionary, it says, prudent means wise or judicious in practical affairs or marked by wisdom. It doesn't link it to this negativeness of the word prude. Okay, so a prudent man, what's it say in the verse? Is able to see danger. How key is that? To see your danger. He can recognize it. He sees it for what it is. He has discernment. Somehow he has discernment. We are believers. We should have discernment. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment. And he responds appropriately when he sees it. He takes refuge. And we'll come back to this concept of refuge and spend some time on what that is. In fact, that's one of the ways we're going to end today. But a simple man, on the other hand, is oblivious to the dangers. Maybe he even welcomes the danger. Maybe he's desensitized to the danger. And what's he do? The verse says that he keeps going and suffers for it. He's unconcerned or unaware of the risks He carelessly goes forward, and he responds in the wrong way. He reaps what he sows. Now, some examples of a simple person, I'd like to give you a few. Three examples, quick. Say a person is wanting to go to a movie. He investigates the movie, sees what it's about, realizes it's going to contain sexually explicit material, thinks about it, watches it anyway, goes forward and watches it, the simple man. How about this one? A college student, male, college student, decides to attend a party where he's been invited. He knows alcohol is going to be there. He knows members of the opposite sex are going to be there. But he goes anyway. He drove to the party, and just to be a good social person, he partakes as well of the alcohol that's been offered to him freely. Another example, a married man is on a business trip. 
he's alone. He just ate in the restaurant, in the hotel. He walks past the bar. He looks in. He sees a woman that he knew from a previous business meeting sitting alone at the bar. Rather than just go back to his room, he goes and sits next to her and orders a drink. Each of those are pretty obvious examples of a simple man response to a temptation that laid in front of these people. Now, Peter warned us that this is all about spiritual warfare. We've all heard this verse many times, 1 Peter 5.8, Be alert and sober mind, of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion Look for someone, looking for someone to devour. He devours through his lies and deceit. But let's go back to the prudent man. The prudent man takes refuge when he saw the danger. He flees from the danger. He doesn't experiment with it. He doesn't take chances. When he sees it, he recognizes it, and he turns to a place of refuge. Now, I'm going to kind of go away from the temptation thing for just a short time because remember James said that it is the temptation combined with our own internal evil desires that combine to give sin. Scripture has many places that tells us to flee from those evil desires even. So we've got to get away from them as well as minimizing our exposure to temptation. And I'm going to just real quickly, they're on your study sheet, talk about some of those evil desires that we are called to flee. In the, his, Paul's letters to Timothy, a young man, he understood the risks that a young man faces. And so he was pretty strong in his encouragement to Timothy to avoid these kinds of things. 2 Timothy 2, he says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Well, what are those desires of youth that tend to linger? Well, in a male, I would say things like sexual lusts, jealousy, selfishness, irresponsible behaviors related to adventure, maybe laziness, things that might linger as we age. Desire for riches we're supposed to flee. You're all familiar with this. I'm going to just real quick say we are to flee this desire to get rich and this uh, flee from the love of money. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul is telling that church in Corinth to flee from sexual immorality, which was probably pretty commonplace in the city of Corinth. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, that is a f command to flee these physical behaviors. But again, back to Jesus and his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we're to flee these kinds of thoughts as well. And that's harder yet than to control those outward behaviors. So how do we flee from the love of money or sexual immorality or other evil desires such as those of youth? Well, it can only be by loving something more and pursuing something else. Pursuing something better than those sensual pleasures. Rather than indulge the flesh, Paul urged Timothy to pursue 
the desires of the Spirit and stay focused on the work of the Lord and his work. But the emphasis here is really on two words in these flee passages. It's flee and pursue. Two actions, two choices that we have to make. It really resides with us as to whether we flee or not. Now, when you flee from something that is dangerous, and in this case, you know, we're talking about temptations or evil desires, but think of any other thing dangerous. I thought of an angry wasp. When you flee from an angry wasp that you somehow encounter out in your yard, we tend to just run around aimlessly, don't we? We don't know where to run to, do we? I mean, I know when I've had a wasp chasing me, maybe I ran in the house sometimes, but if I'm kind of out in the yard, I'm just kind of scrambling around, waving my arms. I'm not fleeing to any place of safety. I'm just fleeing somewhere. (laughs) Um, Is that the way we are fleeing these other kind of dangers? These things that are evil desires or temptations? Do we go from one place of danger to another? Are we really not turning to a place of safety, which this verse called a refuge? So before we really get into defining that refuge a little bit more, I have a question. Maybe you you can say, I have tried to flee. And I have done that in the past. I saw a temptation in front of me and I turned away from it. I I fleed. But the question that I want to ask is, do you have a tendency to look back or hold on to what you are fleeing from? Do you really flee in a way that you have broken free of it? Or is there something that is causing you to hold on? My guess is we all hold on to some of these things to some degree and have not totally broken free. The best biblical example that I know of of not breaking free is Lot's wife. You remember that Lot's family settled in that area of Sodom and Gomorrah where we have a thoroughly evil, sexually immoral city out of control. I hope our nation isn't becoming too much like Sodom and Gomorrah, because we certainly know that uh, God chose to punish them for that, and we may be bringing such upon ourselves. But anyway, the two angels urged Lot and his family to flee before God's wrath was poured out. And just a couple verses out of Genesis 19, where that story is told, one of the angels said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere on the plain, Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Then the Lord rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities. But Lot's wife looked back. She didn't break free. And she became a pillar of salt. Well, we don't really know what Lot's wife found so hard to leave behind. But its pull was strong. And that's, I believe, what we really are hearing in this passage is that inability of her to break away from whatever it was that was tugging on her sinful nature. So a question we should be asking ourselves, and, and I'll tell you, this hits home with me for sure. This whole message hit home with me hard as to whether I am doing 
what God wants us to do regarding temptation in my life and even those desires. But are we keeping something in our house that tempts us that we won't get rid of, but yet we're willing to live with that temptation that works with our desires and causes us to sin? Are we harboring some kind of pattern of thinking, maybe fantasies of some sort that we won't break away from? We're probably all struggling in this way in one way or another, but it's, it is something that is worthy of some self-examination. Okay, so we, if we hope to turn away from these things, and that is an act of repentance. I haven't really thrown the word repent in, but that's kind of the definition of repent. You turn away from something to something else. You turn away from the thing that is bad or wrong, and you turn to something that is good. You don't just turn and run aimlessly. You have Repentance means turning away from the bad to the good. Um, we need God's help to make these choices. It, we can do some on our own, but those choices are where we need his help to help us make the right choice because the call of the sinful nature is strong. So kind of just reviewing quickly the prudent process of, of avoiding impacts from temptation. First is recognize the danger. It takes wisdom and discernment. You recognize it. Second, you turn away. That's the repentance. That's a choice. That's the first choice we make to pursue something better and take the way of escape. Third, we break free. We do not look back. This choice may be the hardest. It may not be nearly as hard to turn away the first time. You recognize it, you turn away. The hardest may be to break free and not look back. But then when you break free, where do you go? You flee to that safe refuge. That's the final choice in that process. Okay, so we need to pray. Jesus, we said that already. Jesus told us, pray, minimize temptation in my life, Lord. Do not bring it in any more than it has to. Help me, Lord, have minimal temptations in my life. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 37, is another prayer to God to help us turn and focus our intention on something better than what is confronting us straight in front of us. And he says, Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. He's asking for God's help to break free and focus on something good rather than something worthless and harmful. Paul had another aspect to this when we try to turn away. And this is from Philippians 3. He is encouraging us to forget the past, forget the failures of the past. He's saying, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He is telling us, take those thoughts captive where we may have had pleasure, sensual pleasure coming to us. Forget that. Maybe it's even an addiction. Forget those and look forward to those eternal rewards which are far better than those things that we are leaving behind. And then in Psalm 141, David puts it all together. He sees God as the safe refuge. He calls him our refuge. He says, my eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. 
Do not give me over to death. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me. The snares, the temptations, from the traps set by evildoers. Those who are under the influence of Satan. God's our only sure place of safety. Think of Martin Luther's famous hymn. And I, I want to thank Bill for putting some songs in our worship time today that relate to this message. But I don't think you picked this one, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you probably thought about it, but that's a really relevant one as well to this whole concept of God being our refuge. It's the first line, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Well, do you know what a bulwark is? It's a military term for a wall or an embankment that provides protection from enemies. Martin Luther recognized that God is a fortress, a refuge, a place of safety. And how do we enter that place of safety or refuge? Well, three main ways, and there's probably more, but prayer, worship, and spending time in his word. When we do those things, we do enter the refuge that, of that God. And then there's this concept of abiding. You enter, you abide in Jesus because he is our refuge as well. And that doesn't mean you hide from the world. It doesn't mean that you run away from the world. The fact is, the only way, time we can really be fruitful and kept safe from the ways of the world is if we're abiding in him. We can still relate to the world and abide in Christ. doesn't mean separate yourself totally from the world. We're just not of the world. We can still be in it. Okay, back to the view of Jesus. He thought temptation and the resultant sin could be so serious that he said something really radical about it in terms of avoiding temptation because he knew we're weak. The flesh is weak. We will sin. In Matthew 5, another Sermon on the Mount verse, passage, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Does Jesus want us to mutilate ourselves? Absolutely not. It's his way to emphasize trying to rid ourselves of those lusts and to minimize temptation in our lives. He knows us so well and loves us so much that he wants the best for us now and for all eternity. He's really saying, get rid of those things that are either temptations or flee from those desires. Now, in preparing for this message, I already said it really hit home with me in a lot of ways, and I know that I have not done that well. Whether it's the flee, the tempting situations, every time I see one, or those lustful desires, am I praying that God will help me be able to get rid of those in my life? I haven't done that good. God has always provided a way of escape, but I'll tell you, I know I haven't always taken it. There's times when I was like the simple man and went forward and suffered for it. Sometimes obvious suffering, sometimes it's just emotional or spiritual suffering. So um, I'm going to end with a story that tells about one of my failures to not take the way of escape. And 
would you guys go ahead and put up, we've got a few pictures, I've got five pictures, and um, I think the pictures will help tell the story. And this is one of these manly kind of uh, failures, where what I end up doing wrong is letting my pride, that's the evil desire that I've got in me, pride, and when that pride came face to face with a temptation, I behaved like the simple man. Okay? That's what this story is about. Long's Peak in Colorado. I'm calling it a tempting adventure. Now, I know, I bet there's some people here, because I know some people in our church have climbed Long's Peak just like we did. Go ahead to the next one. Next picture. Now, Long's Peak, what you were looking at on the previous slide, you kind of go around the mountain. There's something called a keyhole, and I should have pointed that out on the previous slide, but you go around the mountain through something called the keyhole, and you kind of wind your way around. Well, after you hit the keyhole, things get a little bit more difficult and scary. One of the last things you do is you go in an area called the Narrows, which looks kind of scary. See that guy? Kind of looks like he's not walking on any path but there is a little narrow path. This was on a dry day. This was not my day. Switch to the next one. This was our day. And you can see people walking where there is snow and ice. And if you go way up on the top corner, you've got to walk across all that ice, and it's about this wide, and it's 1,000 feet or more straight down from there. And um, the bottom line is, I almost quit two or three times. This is actually going back. This is, we'd already gone to the top and gone back here. But the Holy Spirit was urging me multiple times to not do this today. Because I had three 18-year-old boys with me and another man and this was the first time any of us have done this, uh, the boys had ridiculous basketball shoes on doing this climb that had no grip on this ice, but yet we were having to maneuver on that, and that little path up at the top was really treacherous. I knew that we were making a mistake. Go ahead to the next one. When you get to the end, that would have actually been behind this. This is going up to the top. That's the summit right up there. We came to this snowy area, which was even worse. This is much steeper than you think. It's probably that kind of angle up to the top. And we did some things that I think were really stupid to get to the top. But we did. Go ahead to the next one. This is our group at the top. And you could see there's a lot of snow all in these little pockets up there, too. But you see the smiles. Everybody smiling now. I learned later that those boys were terrified <laughs> on that area called the Narrows, and nobody would say anything. Nobody wanted to... I actually wanted to turn back, and I said it once, and you know what? They didn't listen to me. I don't know if I would have um, tried harder if they would have, but we were close. But what did I do here? I, I saw the temptation was to make it to the top. My manliness, my pride 
was telling me, do it. Satan was telling me, do it. Every year, people die on this mountain. And there is no way I could have, I don't know that I could have come home if somebody would have fell off of the mountain. I couldn't face people. I don't know how I could face them. Even today, when I think about the stupidity of walking on those narrows over ice with the kind of shoes and equipment we had, my stomach hurts, if you know what I mean. That's the penalty I'm paying for that right now. God, in his mercy, saved us from the consequences of our own sin that day. I don't know why. Why was he kind to us? Why did he not have us have an accident? Well, maybe we didn't fall off the mountain and die, but all of us have this feeling now uh, of fear of, of these things. You get this kind of feeling. We know we failed him. We were the simple man. We saw danger, and we went forward. Go, go ahead and help you have cut that. I failed. And this is just one example. And you know, us men, we fail in this way a lot. We'll let our pride cause us to make a bad decision. But we fail in many other ways that relate to our sensuality, desire to gratify the flesh. So let's pray to end. Lord, thank you for this, uh, for your word that really shows us how to minimize sin in our life by, by not, by always taking the way of escape that you have provided. We know you have provided it. We know that sometimes that means we've got to humble ourselves and choose something that we don't want to choose. Uh, we know, Lord, you have provided a way of escape and help us to first recognize it, help us to take it, help us to flee to you, Lord, as our refuge. Help us turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us to stay focused on him. Help us to not remember the pleasures of the past, but to take thoughts captive that are drawing us into these behaviors. We just pray, Lord, for your strength. We pray for your wisdom. And we just pray, Lord, that, uh, that you will protect us through all of these kinds of things that come into our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.